John 10, 22 through 30. This is the word of Almighty God. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Pray with me, friends. Lord God, please add your blessing to the reading, to the preaching of your holy word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Okay, some questions need to be answered. Some don't. Some facts I want, some facts I don't. Some information I don't need. I tell my children, talking about trivial matters sometimes, don't ever ask a question you don't want the answer to. For example, you really don't want to look at the nutrition facts on the Taco Bell menu. (laughs) Ever! If you eat there, you've already made your decision. I think it's a blessed thing, but others don't. Alternatively, There are some questions that even when you don't want the answer to them, they're important questions and you need the answers. In the passage for today, the Jewish religious leaders, they're going to approach the Savior and ask him a question that they really do not want the answer to. Their minds about him are already made up. And when Jesus tells them the answer, it's going to make them cranky. But in this instance, they need to know the truth. And the answer Jesus gives them is an answer we need to hear too. As we look and find five points in today's passage, we'll see things that we want and need to know. We'll find reasons to believe in Jesus and glorify him in the gospel. We're going to see powerful truths about the sovereignty of God, the security of the salvation of God's elect, and all of it will remind us of the truth that Jesus really is our good shepherd. So point number one, as we get started, I'm gonna ask you if you guys can guess what the first point's gonna be. It's regular. Believe in Jesus. That's a great point to start with, y'all. Look at 22 to 25. Believe in Jesus. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. From verse 22... We learned that this encounter between the Jewish leaders and Jesus takes place a few months after what we read earlier in chapters 9 and 10. It's the time of the Feast of Dedication. 
It's a festival that you may know. You may not hear the word the Feast of Dedication very often, but you hear the term, the word Hanukkah used. That's what the Feast of Dedication was. That places us in the month of December. It's about three or four months from when Jesus will be arrested and crucified. Now, though never commanded in Scripture, Hanukkah drew many Jews to Jerusalem, just like the other major feasts. And during the celebration, the Jews remembered the kindness of God to free them from an oppressive and oppressing enemy. The man's name was Antiochus Epiphanes of Syria. Ever heard that name before? This man was an evil man. He led an army into Jerusalem in 167 BC and he desecrated the temple. Three years later, the Jews, under the leadership of a man named Judas Maccabeus, they used guerrilla warfare tactics and they retook the city and they cleansed the temple. And the eight-day-long festival of lights is a way in which the Jews celebrate that victory. God never commanded it, but they do it, and hey, why not? Well, because it's December here in John 10, it's likely rainy, windy, and cold in Jerusalem. So Jesus is walking in Solomon's colonnade, which is like a sheltered area near the eastern wall of the temple complex. And there Jesus is surrounded by a group of hostile religious leaders who demand that he answers their questions. When they ask him, how long will you keep us in suspense? They're being nastier than you think. They might as well have been saying, how long are you going to keep us up in the air? Or even one translator might say, keep annoying us. How long are you going to keep bugging us with all this? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. That sounds reasonable on the surface. Earlier in this book, Jesus clearly told the woman at the well at Samaria, he is the Christ. Jesus told the blind man in chapter 9, he's the son of man. You might assume that admitting that he is the Christ would be no big deal. But Jesus is not going to do it right here. Why? Maybe Jesus knows they don't rightly understand the mission of the Christ. See, to the politically-minded leaders around Jesus, the first goal of the Christ was to be a military conqueror, a king, to overthrow the enemies of the Jews. And while Scripture certainly promises that Christ, the son of David, will rule on earth forever, it's not his first mission. Before the Christ comes to conquer, the Christ comes as a suffering servant who will give up his life to atone for the sins of God's people. So maybe Jesus is not calling himself Christ to this group because he knows they don't know what being the Christ is about. That reluctance ought to make sense to you, by the way. You ever have somebody ask you to wear a label and you don't think they know what that label means? Maybe you've got somebody ask you, are you a Calvinist? That's a dangerous label to put on unless you know what they mean by the word. Maybe you have somebody ask you, are you a Baptist? Well, if you don't know that person very well, if I don't know that person very well, I want to know what they think that word means. You keep using that word. It does not mean what you think it does. See, to some people out there, 
because of their experience, maybe because of some hurt they've received, maybe because of bad teaching, they might say that Baptist equals racist, equals legalist. Well, those words have nothing to do with what it really means to be a Baptist. You might need to do some explaining before you would wear that label, right? For other people, though, they might say Baptist means somebody who loves the Bible, who values the church, who who loves a confession like the 1689 London Confession or the abstract of principles of 1858. Very good little statement. Well, if that's what they mean, then maybe you could say, yeah, you know what? I am, in fact, a Baptist when you understand it that way. Maybe you don't know if you're a Baptist or not. Bless your heart. We'll we'll talk about that some other day. The point is, when the Jews demand that Jesus declare whether or not he's the Christ, they're wanting him to put on a label, but they've got a perception in their mind. But I love it. Jesus responds to them. They say, oh, when are you going to tell us? Stop holding us up in the air. Jesus says, I have told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness about me. Jesus tells us here that he has already made his identity clear in two separate ways. His words and his works have told them who he is. This crowd that doesn't even have interest in believing in Jesus has missed them both. So let's see some examples of the words of Jesus just in John that should have made his identity pretty plain. John chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Jesus says, My father is working until now, and I am working. You know what Jesus just claimed? He claimed God is his father. Jesus just claimed he is equal in essence with God. It's a big claim. Down in verse 21 and 22 of chapter 5, For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. Jesus says, I have authority over life and death. Jesus said he's the judge of all. Is that a pretty big claim? John 5, 39 to 40, Jesus said, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus just said the entire Bible points to him. Is that a big claim? What if Ben said that? There you go. That was quick. Earlier this morning, I was reading on my phone the order of service, and I forgot a punctuation mark that needed to be there. And in the order of service, my phone read to me, call to worship Ben. (laughs) We needed a colon there real bad. Don't, we're we're never going to call you to, to, to do that, just so you know. But Jesus said the whole Bible points to him. He's telling you who he is. John 7, 37 and 38. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus says he gives living water to all who believe in him. It's huge. John 8, 23 to 24. He said to them, you're from below. I am from above. 
You're of this world. I'm not of this world. I told you that you will die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Jesus said he's from above. He's the only way not to die in your sins. What do you think that means? John 8, 56 to 58. The Jews said, or Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus said Abraham, 2000 BC, was looking forward to him as the promised one from God. Jesus said, I'm the promised one. But even more than that, Jesus said, he is the I am. Those are just a few examples of things Jesus said in public to the teachers about himself. He's obviously claiming that he's the Christ. He's claiming to be the promised one sent from heaven by God to accomplish God's holy will. The only reason these leaders say that he hasn't spoken plainly is that they do not want to receive the truth of what Jesus has claimed. I said his words testify to him, so do his works. What has John given us that are the works of Jesus? So far in John's telling of the gospel, Jesus turned water to wine, chapter 2, and healed a man's servant from miles away with a word, chapter 4. In chapter 5, Jesus healed a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years, and the teachers definitely knew about that one. Jesus fed 5,000 men with five loaves and two fish. Then he walked on water in chapter 6. In chapter 9, Jesus healed a man who had been born blind, a miracle again, which the religious leaders were certainly privy to. The words... And the works of Jesus have testified to his identity. He's God in the flesh. He's the one sent by God to fulfill everything God ever promised. He is the Christ. So before we move on, let me draw our point of application. Believe in Jesus. You see why that's a point, right? The religious leaders were hostile. Refusing to see the truth. You don't be hostile. Surrender to the truth. Believe. If you don't think that Jesus was crazy and you don't think Jesus was evil, you've got to accept that Jesus has said things only God can say. Jesus has done things only God can do. Jesus is your only hope for salvation, and he will happily save you. Believe in Jesus. Point number two. Rejoice in being God's sheep. Verse 26. But you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. Jesus knows that the religious leaders surrounding him do not believe. The Savior makes it clear that the reason they don't believe is they're not a sheep. They don't belong to God. The sheep reference carries our minds back to the beginning of John 10, right? Jesus has already had a nice conversation a couple months prior. Jesus declared himself to be the good shepherd. 
And he made it clear that his own sheep know his voice and they follow him. And we said that this is a reference to the people of God, the elect from before the dawn of time, hearing the call of Jesus and responding in faith. And the reason that these religious teachers don't believe is they're not as sheep. They're not among the elect. They don't belong to God. Therefore, they will not hear Jesus' voice and they will not come to him to be saved. Now, I've got to tell you, to risk being doctrinal, this continues to establish for us the doctrine of predestination. Jesus does not say, you're not my sheep because you don't believe. See, that would put the deciding factor for man's salvation in man's hands. Instead, though, Jesus says, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. Believing for salvation is a result of being among the chosen Faith that saves is a gift given to us by God, as we see in Ephesians 2.8. If you believe, it's because God made you his sheep. But if you die in lostness and unbelief, it's because you're not God's sheep. Now, here's a question because a lot of people get wound up about now. Does this verse remove from us human responsibility? No, not at all. Scripture affirms divine sovereignty and human responsibility. God commands all people to believe. You know that's true in the Bible, right? All people have sinned and earned the wrath of God. All who believe are saved. God has elected some from among humanity to be his, to believe that he would bring to himself to be the gift of God the Father to God the Son, a people he will raise up on the last day. How do we know that? John 6, 37 and verse 40, Jesus said this in John 6, 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Did you hear who will come to Jesus? Who will come to Jesus? All the Father gives him will come. Verse 40, Jesus said, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Who comes? The one who believes. Put those verses together, and you see that it is our responsibility, our requirement to trust in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. It is your responsibility before God to believe. But we also see that all the people that the Father gave the Son as a gift will in fact come to Him by faith. Those who sinfully refuse to come to the Son to have life, rebelling against God's command to find salvation in Christ, they're proven never to have been God's sheep. Now, don't read into that the concept of philosophical equal ultimacy. While God must actively move to bring a person to saving faith, the Lord doesn't have to take any action at all for somebody to oppose him. All humanity is already rebellious against God. 
we default to opposition against the Lord. Those who are saved have, have, have God sovereignly change their hearts, changing their desires that they might believe. But all who do not believe are fully and totally free and they choose in accord with their deepest natural desires. God didn't have to move against those who were lost to make them oppose him. He just gives them their freedom. Does God wrong somebody by letting them be free? No. Does God lovingly, graciously do good to somebody when he changes their desires that they would believe? Yes. Now, trying to go deeper in order to understand all of how this works, it's a task beyond your wisdom and mine. Only the infinitely holy, infinitely perfect God can fully understand both his motives and his ways. But we know this. All God's ways are perfect, just, and right. Would you affirm that? So instead of trying to wrestle out all the implications of God's sovereign election, how about this? You take a moment to respond rightly to God right now. Instead of fussing about the mysteries of how God does it, you get a chance right now to respond to God rightly, okay? You have one of two ways to do it. If you presently have never come to Jesus for salvation, don't start worrying about election. Don't wonder about whether or not you're among the chosen. God commands you to believe. That's your responsibility. Understand this, like me, you have sinned before God. Jesus came to lay down his life to pay the price for all the sins of all who believe. See that Jesus rose from the grave. Don't rely on yourself. Don't rely on any goodness that's in you. Don't rely on good deeds or religious activities. Just put your full trust for your eternity in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Believe in Jesus and you will be saved. Amen, church? God has erected no barrier against you to prevent you from coming to him in faith. Believe. If you do believe, your right response is this. Rejoice in being God's sheep. Thank God for choosing you and drawing you to himself. Don't you take even one ounce of credit for your salvation. Give all the glory, 100% to God and live in joy and gratitude for the salvation God gave you in Christ. Third point. Thank God for the gospel. Thank God for the gospel. Verses 27 and 28, the beginning. I'm going to cut off middle of verse 28. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. The Savior's purpose here in this passage is not to spark a big debate over free will and predestination, and neither is that my purpose. I want you to know this. You can disagree with me on this topic. You can disagree with me about how this works and I promise you I won't be mad at you and I won't make fun of you and I won't put you down. 
But Jesus, what he wants here is he wants his hearers to understand the truth of salvation for those given him by the Father. And Jesus wants you to get this and to be grateful for it too. If you're a Christian this morning, know that Jesus is talking here about you and he begins to spell out for us the simple parts of the gospel. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Understand this discussion is about how those who who belong to Jesus, how they respond to him. What does he call them? He calls them my sheep. Jesus declares, I know them. Now that word know here when he says I know them, it's bigger than just mental intellectual knowledge, right? If that word only meant I know about them, I'm aware of them, it has to apply to everyone equally because Jesus knows everything, right? In this instance, when Jesus says, I know them, he's saying, I've set my love upon my own. There's, there's, there's patterns for that in the scriptures where God says, only one nation of all the nations have I known. It's set his love on. When any of us are saved, it starts with us, from our perspective at least, hearing the voice of Jesus. Now don't think mystical, charismatic stuff when I said that. The point is, you hear the call of the Savior when somebody communicates it to you. It may be that it's from you reading the Bible. It might be from you listening to a sermon here or online somewhere. It might be from some evangelist who comes to you and summarizes the gospel. But somehow you get the message. God is holy. We are sinful. Jesus died for our sins. Repent and believe to be saved. And if you're a sheep who belongs to Jesus, not only will you hear that message, but something inside of you is just going to ring out knowing it's true. And you're going to respond with sorrow over sin and a desire to believe and to be saved. Jesus says, they follow me. Not only will you hear the voice of Jesus ringing in scripture or sermon or somewhere, Also, you will be stirred by God to respond because true sheep who belong to Jesus follow Jesus. You move. You get up. You pray. You entrust your soul to him and your life is changed. Now, this is a great opportunity for me to remind you of a key element of the gospel. The good news is that though we are naturally rebels against God, we can be forgiven by God's grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. The grace of God means you don't do anything at all to earn your salvation. You don't even obey the law to be saved. The sheep following does not earn salvation by following. No. Salvation comes when you hear the voice of Jesus and believe. You then follow because you love the shepherd who has called you and saved you. All saved people are changed and they behave differently. No person is saved because of his or her good behavior. 
Then Jesus also says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. What happens when you believe in Jesus? Jesus gives you at that moment eternal life, forever life. Though we earn death for sinning against God, the Savior grants us life that lasts forever. It's life that is abundant. We saw that in verse 10. It is spiritual life in the presence of our Lord. The alternative to this is death and hell. So eternal life is a good thing. Those who entrust their souls to Jesus will never spiritually perish. Christians, thank God for the gospel. Aren't you glad that your salvation is not dependent on how well you follow? Aren't you glad that your ability to keep the rules or understand all the doctrines is not the test of your soul for eternity? Now, don't get me wrong. Obedience after salvation is a good, right thing. But the true gospel is not rules to be kept or deeds to be done. The true gospel is that Jesus kept all the rules on your behalf. Jesus suffered our punishment. Jesus rose from the grave. Jesus beat death. And Jesus, our very good shepherd, calls to his sheep, believe, believe, believe and be saved. And in that sweet, simple salvation, Jesus accomplishes in us something we could never accomplish for ourselves. And for this, we should be overwhelmingly grateful. All right, fourth point. Rest in God's security. Rest in God's security. You still with me? Okay. Look at verse 28, the middle of the verse to 29. Jesus talked about you get eternal life, you never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Jesus has already told us he's the good shepherd. He's shown us that all who are his sheep hear his voice and follow. Jesus knows he has set his love on his sheep. And Jesus tells us that he grants to his sheep eternal life. He then doubly makes the emphasis because he also denies the opposite, right? I give them eternal life, positive. They will never perish. Negative side of the same point, right? The simple plain truth here is that every single person who truly comes to Jesus in faith for forgiveness is saved and all the people who are saved by God are to know that their salvation is a gift that was given them by God, worked by God from before the dawn of time. God is truly the author of our salvation and this salvation results in life forever with God. The question is, could anything possibly interrupt the process? What if, what if something doesn't go perfectly? What if somebody tries to take us away from God? What if we go through a season of struggle and doubt or failure? What then? Is it possible to lose the salvation that God has given us? Well, Jesus said we'd never perish. Jesus said he gives us eternal life. 
side point. Eternal life ain't eternal if you could make it come to an end. Right? Jesus will give us yet one more reminder that salvation is the work of God in our lives from start to finish. God starts the process, God will complete the process, and God won't fail in the process. Jesus is going to teach us here, God preserves his own, and he does it with the shepherd and the sheep metaphor, right? First, Jesus says, his sheep are in his hand, and no one can snatch them out of his hand. Take a moment and let that sink in, would you? If a person has heard the voice of Jesus and responded in faith because they are his sheep, they're in the hand of the Savior. Nobody, nowhere, no how can overpower Jesus and pull them out of his hand. You get that, right? Jesus doesn't fail. Do you guys believe Jesus failed in anything he tried to do? If he did, he ain't God. Jesus will give life to all the Father has given him. And he will raise them up on the last day he promised. Now, in case that's not comforting enough for you, Jesus introduces a second hand. Because the Son of God says he's the good shepherd and he gives his sheep into the hand of his Father. And he adds that nobody can steal his sheep from his Father's hand. Do you get that? A child of God is held in the combined grip of God the Father and God the Son. Double clutched by infinitely mighty God. Two almighty hands are united in clinging to the sheep to ensure its eternal salvation. What a fool somebody would be to believe that they could somehow wrench apart those almighty fingers and snatch away a sheep rescued by the good shepherd. How insane would it be to suggest that somebody could break into the accomplished work of Jesus and cause his work and the plan of the Father to fail? Dear friends, it'll never happen. Those Jesus saves stay saved. He keeps them. Now some people call this doctrine, when I grew up, we called it the security of the believer. Other people call it the perseverance of the saints. Other people call it the preservation of the saints. I like that one. I don't care what you call it. If a person is saved by Jesus, that person is kept by Jesus for eternity. Well, one might ask, if though no outsider can rip that sheep out of the Savior's hands, what about the sheep itself? Can a person once saved turn away so as to be lost? Can the sheep choose to hop out of the Savior's hand? I've heard that argued before. First, just from the passage, who does Jesus say can take the sheep out of his hand? Look at the text and you tell me what the word is for who can take the sheep out of his hand. What'd you say? No one. Logically, that must include the sheep because the saved person is not a no one. The saved person is a someone, right? 
So even you can't wrench you out of the Savior's hand. Praise God for that one, right? Second, it dramatically, that question dramatically misunderstands the way salvation happens. You're saved. When you're saved, God counts all of your sins, past, present, and future, to the account of Jesus Christ, which Jesus paid for by his death on the cross. If you suggest that you could leave your salvation behind, you're suggesting that the almighty, all-knowing God somehow didn't notice or chose not to forgive the sin of your future rebellion when he applied the blood of Jesus to your account the first time. Does that not sound crazy to you? Third, thinking we can walk away from salvation fails to acknowledge that our salvation was planned by God before there was time accomplished by Jesus before we were born and applied by the Spirit after he brought us to spiritual life. Let's never suggest that a believer, a true believer, may not go through a moment or even a significant season of hurt, doubt, or even rebellion. Because it happens. Some of you have been through significant seasons of rebellion. Some of you may have a season of your life coming in which things are hard and painful and where you act like a big dum-dum for a long time. But dear friends, never ever forget that God saves people by his power and for his glory and the ones God saves God keeps God will always bring to completion the work he began in you no never use this doctrine as a license to sin yes rest in God's security fifth point Praise Jesus as God. Praise Jesus as God. Verse 30 says, I and the Father are one. How big does that verse sound, by the way? Earlier the Jews demanded, tell us plainly, are you the Christ or not? Well, Jesus goes a step farther. He tells them quite directly that he is God. This statement from Jesus, it's astounding in its simplicity and it's earth-shaking in its ramifications. Let's do a little grammar because you guys love some grammar, right? There's some significant information here. Jesus says, I and the Father, clearly indicating two different persons, right? No doubt about this, I and the Father, the way that's written out, it's two different persons. The linking verb form for the word are is a plural form. I and the Father are one. Some translations will say, I and the Father, we are one. You guys understand that there's a difference in a singular and a plural verb, right? Because if Jesus said, I and the Father is one, that would be singular. It'd be weird, but it would be singular. I and the Father are one, we're being plural, two Separate persons are one. 
In Greek, every noun has a gender attached to it. It can be a masculine noun, a feminine noun, or neuter, meaning it doesn't have a gender attached to it, unlike, which is not true of humanity, by the way. Um, (laughs) Sorry. Uh, The word here is grammatically neuter. It's not a masculine word. That indicates to us that this is a claim that while the Father and the Son are one, they're not one singular person. They are of one singular essence. In a tiny little sentence, Jesus proclaims a powerful piece of Trinitarian theology. He makes it clear that he and God the Father, they're not one person, which means modalism is wrong. That's a heresy from the old days. God is not one person who puts on different faces at different ages of history. God the Father did not become God the Son, who later became God the Holy Spirit. So your oneness Pentecostals that are still around in the United States today, that is, that's heretical belief. That Jesus does not affirm that God the Father became the Son, became the Spirit. They're not one, the same person. But using that neuter form for, word, for one at the end, it prevents other heresies like the heresy of Arianism, where a group denies the true deity of Jesus by denying the singular essence that the persons of the Trinity share. The Arian heresy leads to some of the things that, that are taught by Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons, as an example. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. These are three persons. There is one God. This statement here from Jesus is something the Jews grasp. They get it to some degree because next message, Lord willing, we're going to see this results in the Jews trying to kill Jesus because they reject the idea that Jesus is God. But there is no doubt whatsoever that right here, Jesus once again claimed deity. And that claim from Jesus is a really good place for us to wrap up our discussion today. Here's the question, what will you believe? Is Jesus merely a man and nothing more? If Jesus is merely a man and nothing more, I don't care if he's a good man, I don't care if he's a prophet, if he is merely a man and not more than a man... He is not the good shepherd. He is not the savior. And he is certainly not able to keep you safe from all your enemies. But if Jesus is God the son, then he is the good shepherd. He is the savior. And he's the one who with his father keeps us saved for eternity. Praise Jesus as God. If Jesus is not God, you have no hope. Because Jesus is God, If you entrust your soul to Jesus, you have forgiveness and eternal life. The right way to respond to this is for you to believe and to rest in his grace. The right response is to rejoice in being God's sheep and to be grateful for the gospel. Praise Jesus as God. Live for God's glory. Live for the eternal joy you can have in him. Let's pray together, friends. Lord, I am grateful for your word. I'm grateful for this gathering. I'm grateful for this day. And I am grateful for the gospel and for the promise of eternal life for those who will entrust their souls to you. Even now, God, I declare, I entrust my soul to you. You're my only hope. 
Jesus dying for my sins and rising from the grave is my only hope. Lord God, I pray for everybody here who doesn't know you, that they will put their trust in Jesus. And I pray for everyone here who has trusted in you. I pray that they will find deep, deep joy in worshiping you. That's our prayer in Christ's holy name. Amen.